Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to a New Books Network podcast. My name is Shraddha Chatterjee, and I'm currently a doctoral candidate and Vanier Scholar at York University in Toronto. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Nema Kayum about her new book, Village Ties, Women, NGOs, and Informal Institutions in Rural Bangladesh. Dr. Kayum is an Associate Professor of Asian Studies and Global and International Studies at Manhattanville College in New York. Thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking to us today, Dr. Kayum. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Thank you. And I'd like to begin by asking you my first question, which is, could you tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey, especially as it leads up to the framing of this book? Um, Essentially, what made you realize this book needs to be written and how does that journey frame the book itself? Yeah, thank you so much uh, for this question. So, the book essentially grew out of the field work I did for my dissertation, um, but it ended up being an entirely different project from the dissertation itself. I grew up in Bangladesh and I lived there until I was 14. So um, I mean, I've, I've spent many summers there since and really, you know, that is home for me and I have very strong connections to the place, the language, the people. But I always felt like I didn't really know my country. So in many ways, the book was for me a coming, a sort of coming home in that way. Um, and um, in terms of the topic, I think I was always sort of obsessed with this idea of informality. You know, this idea of this hush hush backdoor politics, these backdoor rules that govern our way of life and so much of the global south. And in particular, when rules don't work for those of us, for people who are, you know, disenfranchised, how do we make the rules work for us, right? It's kind of like this, somebody I knew um, carried around, always carried on Tentaka in their pocket. And I was like, what for? So I can get a meeting with somebody, you know, or um, the hoops that my mom had to go through to pay her electricity bill because somebody cut off the electric line while digging the roads, right? So I'm like, I'm, I've always sort of thought about, okay, like there is ways to get things done. And what does that really mean um, for our politics and, 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 and political life? Um, 
So even things like treating someone to tea and sweets as a return, you know, as thank you for a favor. But there is like a thing, right? Like you you buy someone tea for this kind of favor and you buy them sweets for that kind of favor. So all of these for me were really informal rules and informal ways of doing things that were both sort of unseen, but also weirdly standardized in a way, right? Because we all know what those rules are. Um, But if somebody comes from the outside and sees them, they won't be able to tell what they are. So so in terms of um, how I end up with BRAC and and this project, um, I was always familiar with BRAC. I was a BRAC intern um, right out of college, and I sort of knew I wanted to study this organization. I was—I I just really loved the idea of these women sort of claiming their agency in this way. Um, and and when I started studying Polish homage, this organization, I was at first looking at women's participation. You know, as a political science student, those were the things that we were taught to look for. And I wrote my dissertation on participation, and then I realized, wait a minute, there's another story here, right? How, because I was looking at what was happening underneath that participation, all the motivations, and I was like, okay, there is this whole informality thing going on here too. Um, So I think for me, um, I realized that um, that these informal rules are sometimes obviously very disadvantageous, um, especially for the oppressed, especially for women, because, you know, you have questions of class and patriarchy and what women can do and can't do. But sometimes they're good. And um, and, I, and and one of the major themes for me in the book was really the ways in which the formal and informal intersected, right, to create this really complex tapestry, Um of actions and the norms that shape them and, and these outcomes, some of which are good and some of which are bad. Um, thank you for sharing that. And I, and I have many questions, of course. Um, it's, it's almost like you're describing this kind of informal sociality. That's also very instrumental and you're right in pointing out that, you know, um, in, in many ways, so many of us know what these rules are, even though they're not explicitly, you know, told to us or taught to us in some ways. Um, But before we get into that, I just want to quickly ask you, could you describe what BRAC is for our listeners? Yeah, um, BRAC is, at this time, I believe the world's largest non-governmental organization. Um, BRAC was created in 1972, um, right after... um, the war, the the, uh, the liberation war in Bangladesh, and um, and in the context of you know a, a cyclone and 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 the war, um, and sort of as a in, in terms of um, an organization that was immediately provide that was providing sort of re- recovery efforts, but eventually, I mean, it was always woman centered. It was always centered on social development, and eventually, it grew beyond that um, into this sort of incredible um organization that now operates in so many different countries and um and i think that so brax you know it's got microfinance projects and agriculture projects and 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 um and and provides legal aid um to women so it's got all of these different things that it does but i was sort of always i just really loved the idea of women's social development and i just really loved their mission of uh, of centering those ideas. Thank you for sharing that. And that allows us to jump right into my next question, which is, what would you say are the central arguments of your book? And how is your book uh, organized in terms of the chapters? 
Thank you. Um, so in the book, I argue that women's development programs that center on the collective can empower rural women from the global south to bring about institutional change if they um, embrace certain characteristics. So if they're anti-oppression, if they're deliberative, um, and if they're embedded in their communities. And um, and it rests on the premise that poor women's lives are embedded in their social relationships. So whenever we're studying women's agency or women's participation or women's empowerment, we cannot assume that women can do whatever they please, right? Or that we will teach them something and they'd be like, all right, we're going to go do this. It doesn't work like that because... Their, their lives are not just governed by the rules that we see on paper, but also on these, you know, they're governed by these social norms, the rules on the ground, or as Eleanor Ostrom calls the rules and use. That's the term I, I, I use in my book. Um, sort of the do's and the don'ts, right? Um, given, given that women have certain social roles and based on the social roles, what is deemed as appropriate behavior. Um, so it's, you know, just, all of these amazing things are being done by women's organizations where laws are being changed. And then we're still like, wait, why is, why does dowry still exist? Or why do child marriages still exist? Right. Um, so, so I think the next step is then to look at how these norms dictate human behavior. So in terms of framing of the book, I push back a little bit against the concept of neoliberal development. Um, the development industry um, especially as it unfolded, as it developed, as it sort of uh, was established in Bangladesh, was very much centered, is very much centered on this idea of individualized service delivery programs, right? You give, you hand out welfare, you know, hand out all these different, you know, even training or, um, or teach women to do certain things and, and men too, but since the, I want to kind of want to focus on the women because, you know, this is a book about um, women. Um, and, so the industry embraces a neoliberal mindset, which is so centered on the individual, right? On individual enterprise and individual empowerment. Um, and it sort of um, assumes that people are rational and free to make informed, independent decisions. Um, however, you know, poor women in rural Bangladesh cannot make those decisions freely, right? So service delivery programs, while they're amazing and do wonderful things, they don't really they don't, you know, they don't really empower women to challenge the power structures around them, right? And 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 sometimes, you know, and and sometimes actually, um, as critiques of microfinance, they actually harm women, um, what they and what they um, expect women to do. So as opposed to these programs, organized the Polishamaj and and other organizations like it. Um, so the women of Polishamaj they negotiate with state and society actors to sort of try to change the rules of the game and try to change the do's and don'ts on the ground. Um, and um, and alter these sort of and, and challenge these informal norms and practices, right? That dictate how poor people live their lives, or at least try to tell people how they should um, they should live their lives. So, in terms of structure, it's so interesting you ask that question because this is such a big challenge, and I was so excited about the way I was going to structure the book. It's actually divided methodologically more than it is thematically, right? So I have three parts. The first part is the history and the context and the setup. The second part is the quantitative part. Um, and there's a logic to this, which I'll get to in a minute, which has got the quasi-experimental models. It's got, um, and, and I talk about two, two different issues there. Um, and, and just to kind of stick back a little bit, the book um, addresses three different issues. One is, um, welfare, the distribution of welfare. The second 
issue it addresses is a legal system, and the third is women and governance. But instead of organizing it that way, I did the quant stuff first. So I basically looked at whether the areas where Polishamaj exist and the areas where the donics are exist, are they different? Um, and what are these differences and how, because when I'm trying to measure institutional, when I'm trying to measure measure informal institutions or norms, the first way I'll, you know, to know that something's different or something exists is by looking at differences, right? Because they're not on paper. So the only way I'll know is if people are doing something different. Um, so that's what I did in the second part of the book. And the third part was looking at how the women are negotiating with state and society and 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 how they're um, changing these norms. And really the sort of central argument there is that they do it by changing expectations. They do it by reshaping, right? Like, or sort of renegotiating what the standard of behavior is, what is appropriate. Um, so um, I do want to talk a little bit about the history section since we're there, because that was actually one of my favorite ch- uh, parts to write. Um, in the history section of the book, the first part of the book, I um, the history chapter, um, I talk, I try to tell a sort of a gendered history of Bangladesh, which was really, really exciting for me, um, and really focus on what Bangladesh's historical trajectory meant for women. Um, and so Bangladesh, when Bangladesh became independent in 1971, it has survived a brutal war of succession, a devastating cyclone, and years and years of resource drain under uh, United Pakistan. So, and now it's a poster child for human development, right? So the story is what happened there when it came to women's lives. And I sort of found that there were four things that were happening separately that also kind of came together. And the first is, is, you know, as Bangladesh came out of this, of this crisis, or was trying to come out of this crisis, um, scholars like Naomi Hussein have written that, you know, Bangladesh's governments have embraced an aid-based development strategy, which allowed NGOs to enter the villages, right? Because they were in need of the support. And, you know, Naomi Hussein writes about this really wonderful in her book, um, where there was this pact, right, that was made between various actors that we sort of cannot be at this in this place ever again. Um, so now you have all of these foreign organizations and local organizations working um, with the rural poor, but there's also a long history of women's movements, right? Um, that sort of goes much further back um, from um, from period of independence. And Elora Shabutinashi has a brilliant book that just came out um, looking at this history, but. Um, but what happened it, since then is that a lot of women's organizations have what we call NGOized over time, meaning they're starting to take women, you know, development funds, they're, they're starting to take donor funds. And, and while they're trying really hard to stick their mission, and many do, there is a bit of a compromise to be made there, right? Um, and then you have the, this longstanding religious influence in the villages where you have Islamic organizations that are, some of which are also foreign funded and donor funded. Um, and so the question is that what happens as all of these different forces are trying to tell women what to do, because the NGOs are telling them to step outside the house, go to school, become independent, right? Break, and then the, the religious organizations are like, no, 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 you know, but women have to stay in the house or women have to do certain things. Um, so it is within this context that the story of Boli Shamaj um, unfolds. 
Um, thank you. I think that was such a great explanation for what happens in the book, and it also allows me to reflect on the book again in a in a in a more I think intricate kind of way. Uh, before I jump into my next question, which is about your methodology, and and I think that's one of the more exciting things about about the book too. Um, before I jump into that, I just want to quickly ask you, what exactly is the relationship between Brack and Polish homage? And then also, what made you choose the Polish homage particularly as your almost unit of study? Yeah. So Polish homage is one of Brack's social development programs. And um, just to kind of elaborate on the relationship, I work with Brack's at the time research and evaluation division, which was a sort of always been Brack's independent research wing. Um, it doesn't exist anymore. It's been merged with various institutions in the university, etc. But, but um, Polish homage was run by Brax at the time social development program. It's called something else now. Um, and in many ways, it was almost as when official told me Brax neglected program because, you know, the donor money goes into things like microcredit. It goes into things like, you know, to some degree, like agriculture, right? All of these cool sort of, this was kind of like, mm, nobody seemed to really care about it, right? But I mean, except for the people who are running it, who are obviously incredibly dedicated. But I almost feel like when I went to the field, it was almost like that gave them the independence to do what they wanted because the donors weren't really invested in making this go in a certain direction, right? And because of the funding and also nature of the program, there was very minimal oversight because Bragg did have staff members, um, they call program officers or POs on the ground, but these POs would just arrange the meetings, but mostly the women will be on their own. Um, and I think that's so exciting. And, um, uh, you know, in a way you're right. And and I think like what is very exciting about that is precisely that the Polish homage was almost independent because it was neglected. And and that allowed it to become, become something uh, maybe different from the imagination of... Um, Brack itself, right? And and we'll we'll come to that, but very quickly, let me just ask about your methodology. And also I'm very interested in in finding out how it shaped the findings in your book. And you know, you write that you did 10 months of field work, during which time you were the lead researcher on a different project with Brack, if I'm not wrong. And you and the research team conducted over six thousand interviews. So how did that like sheer scale um, shape the arguments in your book. And, you know, I, I guess if I ask the question a different way, what did the meta perspective that you engaged with as a Brack researcher allow you to do with this book, particularly with the Polish homage and the women of Polish homage? And, um, you know, again, why did you choose to house your research with Brack? Yeah. Um, thank you. That is such a good question. Um, so initially, when I when I went to Bangladesh, I actually started my work in an urban hub um, of Dhaka City, and then I realized, no, 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 the real like there is a lot like the, there is a really solid story to be told in the villages, and who do I go to for that? I go to Brad because I've worked with them before. I know what they did. I know what they do, and their focus has always been on social development and always been on women, right? So it felt like the right place to go. Um, and and I was really because I was looking through these programs and I realized that Polish homage actually had very little influence was 
it, it had very little connection with this neoliberal development. I mean, there are intersections with other programs, but you know, there's no loans involved. There's no money involved. The women don't get anything for, for being part of it. Right. So I was just really intrigued by this, um, essentially collective, you know, collective mobilization um, effort, right? Like, how do you, how is this even happening? How are you getting these women to come together? And the groups are really big. I mean, the average group is, is 60. So how do you get 60 women to sit in, you know, it was just absolutely fascinating for me. Um, so I went to them and, you know, they were looking for somebody to lead the program. Our stars were aligned, you know, I applied and, and, and it kind of worked out. Um, so it was really overwhelming. I will tell you, I was a young doctoral candidate. I was like, what am I doing? I have no idea. Right. Um, but I did bring a certain theoretical perspective to the project. Um, and what I picked up and what I learned from, from my colleagues at BRAC was the field methods. I mean, they are phenomenal ethnographers. They are phenomenal methodologists. And I just learned there was something so exciting um, about just being deeply immersed in this in the story and just being in the field for that long. I mean, I, I, was, I was with BRAC for a total of two years and I did three projects, big projects with them. This was the first. Um, I think that I traveled a lot and I traveled from site to site instead of being at one site, you know, for two, for a long time. And in terms of meta perspective, it was pretty amazing to see how universal informal institutions are. I'm just like watching this everywhere in places that are so different, you know. So, for example, in North Bangladesh, which is sort of more liberal, you see young boys and girls like you know, outside school talking together. And then you go to South Bangladesh, where which is so much more socially conservative. And you see the commonalities, the differences too. But, but, um, but it was really kind of incredible to see all the commonalities unfold in this way. But one other thing I want to talk about is the sort of the different areas I was looking at also, right? Because if you think about welfare, and legal issues and women's governance, it's three very different topics. So sometimes I felt like I was writing three different books and I'm like, how am I going to do this? You know, but then when the stories came together, I think as you, you know, as you said, the meta sort of view, it really sort of the pieces fell together in that way. Um, and I think that with BRAC also, BRAC has this incredible infrastructural presence. Their programs exist in so many different places, um, which was really important for getting these diverse perspectives. Um, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I do think that, you know, your book took a certain kind of path and uh, became what it was because you were involved with BRAC. And, um, you know, that allowed you a different kind of access, I think, into into the whole into, into you know your field at large but also it offered you a different kind of perspective too I think and and that was very interesting for me as I kind of read through the book um and you know you've you've brought this up already a little bit and you've talked about how there is a bit of a you know critique of neoliberal development in your book and and I think what you do very very well is hold on to this kind of ambivalence that's associated with developmentalism and enjoyization and and in that way I think um you know at least for me as a reader that ambivalence is more important than taking a position um that a lot of texts on development do so either they're a critique or they're in support of like a kind of development and enjoyization model 
but because you hold on to the ambivalence it allows you to shape the book in a certain kind of way and you know you you write about how on the one hand these organizations offer women the possibility of accessing resources and state processes that would otherwise not be available to them um but then on the other hand you also talk about how these organizations work in conjunction with the state and you know arguably then strengthen the state machinery and mechanisms so how do you see this play out in the context of your research and and i think in some ways i'm also curious how how do you think that shape the lives of the women of the polish homage yeah thank you this is such a fascinating question um and thank you for asking it um as you mentioned this debate appears very prominently in the literature and actually in bangladesh it's a very it's not just a debate it's a disciplinary divide it's a political divide you know and so on the one hand you have the sort of very economic centered body of research that does that does um randomized control trials and you know and 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 it's very focused on women's economic lives and really sort of glorifies what NGOs have done for women i mean you know of course credit to be is to be attributed that they've done amazing things for women women but on the other hand there is this massive critique that comes from anthropologists and especially feminist anthropologists right that who argue that these programs have their limitations and some you know such as Lamia Karim scholars such as Lamia Karim argue that um that they actually harm women too right so i found this debate to be both extremely important but also debilitating because it puts us in this deadlock and we can't seem to get out of it um so you know then i read elora chaudhary's book and and there she talks about exactly this and she says hey what if we push this to the side and see what actually happens and i was like wait i want to do that also you know and let's just center the women and not not center ourselves and our sort of paradigm divides and and like and and see what happens when you actually see what these women do interestingly in bangladesh um I'm going to take a second, please, if that's okay. Um, interestingly, in Bangladesh, NGOs, the relationship between NGOs and the state is a very interesting one because they seem to operate, um, they operate in a kind of partnership, right? Because, you know, the NGOs are partners of the government. Um, and in fact, they exist everywhere, even in places where government officials don't go. But scholars have said that NGOs, such as BRAC, um are actually a sort of shadow state right because they do things that the state is not is not there to do right in many ways you know when we think about for example legal institutions in latin america etc right the way in which shadow institutions exist there um it's a sort of similar argument and i saw this in um in some remote areas like um shalla where actually brac began its operations in 1972 um and I have a really interesting story there. I tried to take a car there and we got stuck and we were stuck on the road because cars don't usually go there and I'm like what am I doing this girl from America like not knowing how to travel, right? Um and it was a place where um you know you had the paddy fields on either side and in the summer you take boats to get there and in the winter you get on a tractor to get there. But while I'm stuck there I'm having these conversations and and while I'm trying to figure out how to get out um and some of the you know the officials were telling me that and it was these women who were the program officers and they were saying that they ride their bicycles to these villages but they were like you know we go to these villages where a government official hasn't been in years um 
kind of it's kind of amazing, you know, to see these young women sort of just getting on these bikes and doing it. Um, but that is a sort of that shows you what kind of infrastructural presence organizations like BRAC have, or in particularly BRAC has. Um, so I think, you know, to sort of pull this together, bring this together, my work gave me a chance to step away from these debates and to really look at how um, collective mobilization can work, right? And, and, and I mean, and, and how Polishama is actually sort of, and Polishama particularly actually allows us to do that because um, it's not a microfinance program. So I can sort of be like, let's put those debates to the side because it doesn't have those sort of financial power relations in it. So I think the particular nature of the program also gave me a bit of freedom to do this. Um, I think that's a great way to kind of explain what's going on. And and again, I think for me as a reader, this is what was very exciting about the book, that you were able to somehow put that debate about neoliberal development aside almost um, to really focus on what it, you know, what the women's lives look like and, and, and you know, to do that through this while maintaining a kind of meta narrative uh, based on just the scale of your research was like very interesting for me to see. And that's why I feel like your book does something very different from, you know, the usual kind of ethnographic work on NGOs and, um, and you know, does something different and, and offers something very unique there. Um, and, and I think like I, I left, you know, I left the book kind of still very, very curious about the women of the Polish homage, you know, like I wanted to know more about their lives, how, like what they were doing and uh, how they were navigating their everyday. So, my next question comes from there, which is, you know, could you talk a little bit about how the women of the Polish Shomaj navigate power? So how does their collective participation in the Shomaj translate into other aspects of their life? And then how do they negotiate power even amongst each other or address disagreements that may happen during their organization or collectivization? And um, I guess I'm just curious to kind of find out... Um, how the empowerment that Polish homage offers them then translates into, um, you know, power dynamics between them. Yeah, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for your kind words. Um, uh, I, I sort of, um, there's so much actually that, you know, now that you asked, you know, asked me this question, I'm realizing so much didn't actually make its way to the book, right? I'm like, should I start with the book? Should I start with what's in? I'm going to start with what's in the book. <laughs> um, so I think one of the central, um, when I think of a women in power, my first instinct is to separate into, you know, rural elite versus the rural poor, and then look at the women themselves. And I don't think that works because there's so many intersections, right, of class, of patriarchy, of of partisanship, right? Because even within the organization, you have the wealthier women. And interestingly, um, the women of Polish much actually tend to elect the wealthier, more established women as their leaders because they find these women to be eloquent and good at bargaining. And then we get into a whole different conversation of, but how do they not exert that power within the organization, right? How is there a sort of democratic process there? And I'll get to that. Um, the women generally, you know, I think one of the central elements in my book, things in my book is how the women negotiate um, and how they negotiate to change those expectations. 
So, for example, when they um, are bargaining with local officials to change how welfare goods are distributed in rural society, um, the bargaining starts from inside the organization. So when they discover that, hey, the government is sending some, you know, ration cards um, to the village, they get the news and they're like, what do we do? So in, in their next meeting, they will discuss in the larger group of 40, 50, 60 women who are the most deserving recipients in the village, right? So as they do that, they're sort of changing expectations, displacing old expectations about who should get resources because in the past, traditionally, um, resources like this would be distributed among sort of in, through clientelist relations, right? The clients of the wealthy or the people who have loud voices and will go and bark in. But now they're saying, no, no, we're going to decide who actually gets them and the people who deserve them most. So they have these um, these very public meetings where they negotiate who who's going to get the resources. And there they change the expectation from from the fact, you know, from one of where the wealthy and powerful will get the resources to one where the most deserving will get the resources, right? And I think there is something very powerful about doing this publicly. It creates accountability. It creates transparency because, and most of the groups meet in open spaces because they're so big. So sometimes people will be standing around and watching, right? And once that when they have made that decision together, that decision is there to stay. That these are our ten people they're the ones we're going to bargain for. And then they go and bargain with the local officials to get those resources. Um, and sometimes they sort of, you know, they they exert, like they try to hold them account- the officials accountable. They're like, we voted for you. You need to give us these, right? Um, and, and, and something sort of different, but also similar works in, in, in case of legal issues like dowry and child marriage, where now they're bargaining with, the families in question, because when they find out that there is a wedding taking place, a wedding scheduled, and the girl is underage, they will go and try to bargain with the family, right? And the power relations there is a little bit different because sometimes the mother of the girl will want to say something, but won't be able to because the male family members and older family members would be like, no, no, this is what girls have to do, right? So um, the expectation there is Obviously, the girl's sort of social role or her social destiny, right? Her ultimate goal is of marriage. She is going to be a wife and she's going to be a mother. But how do you sort of displace that and challenge that, right? So the women um, start like negotiating by saying things like, you know, talking about the the dangers of early marriage, the dangers of dowry, right? The fact, you know, the, the fact that dowry is linked to intimate partner violence, all of those things. And I think the expectation changes from one of, so here, I think I'm, I'm also thinking of the role of the parents, right? Because for the parents, for them, the, their ultimate duty is to get their daughter married, right? That is because the girl's role is to be the wife, but theirs is to be the good parent. So then their expectation, the expectation of their role changes from one where a good parent is one that marries the daughter off to one where a good parent is one who cares about the safety of their daughters, right? Um, so, um, so in many ways, I think they're using the information they have at hand. They're um, they're kind of challenging one set of appropriate behaviors with another set of appropriate behaviors. And something very similar also happens in local governance. So, for example, when you have local elections and um, the women are trying to get one of their own to compete against the wealthy rural elite to win local elections, they're displacing the expectation of who gets to govern, 
right? Is it just the wealthy? Because even when women win local elections, it's often women from wealthy, privileged families. So they're saying, no, right? Poor people can also win elections. Um, so I hope that was clear and that answers your question a bit. I think that was great. And, and it really like allowed me to uh, almost get a glimpse of um, what I wanted more of after I, after I finished your book. You know, again, like I said, that I was always curious about the women of the Shomaj. So, so this allows me to kind of um, visualize their lives a little more, I guess. Yeah. And my next question is also focused on 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 that, which is um, you you said, and you say this in the book as well, that um, the most deserving women will be then advocated for. But I'm curious as to how that deservingness is decided yeah. um, collectively. So could you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Absolutely. Um, I have been to so many Polish Shomaj meetings and I love <laughs> watching it every single time. So actually when they're looking at deserving recipients, they're not just looking at women, they're looking at women, men, everybody. So um, um, for them, I think one of the things I've heard repeatedly is that everybody in this village is poor, right? When you look at who gets cards, it will always be somebody who's poor, but is it somebody who deserves it the most? So really their focus almost always is on the most helpless, the most disenfranchised. So people who are um, chronically ill and can't work, right? People who are, um, who are just unable to work, who are really old, um, sort of, you know, women single women let a single mother let households right it's a woman who's been abandoned with like four or five children so she has to choose between work and take care of so these so i think one of the main things i heard repeatedly is people who cannot work for whatever reason they start there um Shrata, i want to go actually go back to i think something you raised which i don't think i got to which was how do they handle disagreements amongst themselves and i kind of want to go back to that because the question of power comes up there too right and, I, and there's two things I want to mention. The first thing is that when people pick recipients, others get mad because a lot of um, organizations do deliver services. So there are women who join Polish Shamash thinking, oh, we're going to get something because NGOs give things. So when the most disenfranchised people are chosen, they're like, wait a minute, we've been with this organization for so many years and we didn't get something. So they'll go and, and threaten the leaders and say things like, oh, you took bribes from those people. You are corrupt, right? Um and then they end up leaving because they don't get anything. So that sorts itself out. Um, but there's also another dimension of power, which is that if those elected are the most powerful in their villages, how are they in the organization not bullying the other women, right? And I think that there is something about the sheer number of women, because even the smallest group is like maybe 30. I've seen groups of like 150, right? Um, even if not all of them show up at the meeting, those are so it's 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 hard to sort of exert your authority in that way over a group that big because the collective voices will always um drown you out and also the leaders can be re-elected every three years so women can just vote you out if you know um if they don't like you i think that makes a lot of sense and and i think this is exactly why i was curious about how these dynamics play out between them because um, I don't think any organization, you know, whether it's the Polish or, or or really even a smaller organization can function without these disagreements, which are kind of part of the process. And and I'm always curious to kind of find out how those disagreements are handled, because that 
I think says a lot about how the organization is structured, how it's framed, um, and what it intends to do. Um, and I and I also uh, this leads me to a related question, which is we talked a little bit about how disagreements kind of frame the actions and the workings of the police so much, but how do friendships frame and like you know how do friendships frame the work of the police so much, but also how do the friendships kind of form? through the shomaj like what what's really happening there yeah and and i don't know if i have any solid data that makes it say or interviews that make it way into the book but i can tell you what i saw in in the field right which is that there is a camaraderie there in terms of for example who takes so for example when they decide that this person's running for local election Sometimes the or, or is going to take a leadership role. Sometimes the husbands or the in-laws would be like, who's going to do her household work then? And the women will band together and be like, we will go cook in our house today, right? So mm-hmm. they will take care of each other and manage those other responsibilities so their friends and, 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 and you know, comrades can sort of do their, take on their leadership role. Um, I saw a lot of that. Um, shared sort of, caregiving for children, right? Shared, sharing household responsibilities. Um, and also, for example, when you're bargaining for resources with the um, local government, these women have to make several trips to the local government office and literally just sit there because when they're there, the officials will be like, we won't see you today. We won't see you today. So, and they'll wait there until they're like, no, you have to see us. So, and then their family members will get upset because they'll be like, you're shirking your household responsibilities. So, pooling money for that travel, um, covering for each other at home when they're doing those things, you know, that was, um, I, I, I definitely saw a lot of that. And I think that's, that's really great because it also allows us to really uh, kind of see that the, you know, even the kind of close, close circuit of the family begins to open up a little bit because, um, you know, women are now banding together. And, and and I'm not talking here about like a very big change in the sense that, you know, women are still responsible. It looks like from your anecdote, uh, still responsible for doing the household chores and, you know, kind of maintaining the household in that way. But but I think through this like node of friendship and and, you know, collectivization, it also opens up the structure of the family a little bit. It It allows other women into the home and then allows everybody to kind of do a kind of collective um collective work that is still nonetheless gendered but but not isolating in a way that um domestic life can be isolating for women um and and i guess uh i'd also be like curious to kind of find out what that leads to like does that allow women to have more of a say does it reduce say the the um whole domestic violence might have on women's lives or does it uh reduce the incidence of dowry for example and and i think those are some questions i would have yeah um, um yeah those are wonderful questions Shanta. and i think two things come to mind one is that these meetings are also often held in open courtyards in front of the president's house or in front of somebody else's house or on their veranda and that also opens up spaces, right? So women are opening up spaces, claiming spaces as their own, and people are watching them, sometimes suspiciously, like, what are these women up to? But sometimes in awe, right? Sometimes their husbands will come and be like, I want to see what bad behavior she's up to. And then they'll be like, oh, this is actually kind of 
nice, you know? So there is that claiming of space in that way as well. Um, I had another thought that I lost. I wanted, oh, so your question about dowry and, and all of that. So interestingly, or um, a lot of the dowry and child marriage incidents that the women contested were within their own members because and I, and and you know it's they try, so when they hear of something in the village they will go and 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 push back but when when someone seeks help it is usually somebody from their group because those women know that that help is there um so there's a lot of sort of um a lot of the success cases were also when it comes to women in the group who you know so, uh, somebody who was getting their sister married or their daughter married and the women intervened domestic violence is a bit of a harder one um, and I think that it is the one where is the one thing where I found there actually wasn't that much of a difference between polishamaj and non-polishamaj areas, which really shows. I was really disappointed because I thought that would be the case, but when that really shows a gravity of the problem, right? Because even anecdotally, I heard from a lot of women that they know that some of the members are, you know, in really violent situations at, in their homes, but they won't say anything or they won't do anything about it because it is just normatively like so accepted. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think, um, I think you're right. That does, that does raise questions about, um, you know, the, the gravity and also like, I, I suppose the ubiquity of domestic violence, you know? Um, and, uh, I think, I want to switch gears a little bit because uh, you said something that made me very curious at the beginning of the interview. And it's also there in, in some part in the book that you said that working um, in in Bangladesh was almost like coming home or returning home in some way. And I'm always curious about what that dynamic or what that kind of affective attachment of going home uh does to your your sense of field work so like how did it kind of structure the work what did it really allow you to do or not do um uh yeah no thank you for that that is really i think there's a bit of a personal element to it and there's an intellectual element to it too and i'll get to both i think and from in a personal from a personal um sort of perspective, I think I got to travel a lot and do things, see my country in a whole new way. Um, and it, it's not, I don't think I took on this project thinking that, oh, I'm going to travel a lot, right? It kind of just happened. And I got to see the country in a way that, you know, my even my family members who lived there for so many years didn't get to see to go to these places and to understand the sheer diversity, right, in terms of language and dialects and geography, right, and culture, Um so to see all of that, I mean, you know, my first field visit was in a place called Tamorhat, which where I was just going to go sort of scope out Bolishamaj. And I was tagging along with friends who were doing a different study, but or colleagues who were doing a different study. But the idea was to just understand Bolishamaj, stay with them for a few days and come back and sort of design the questionnaire. Um, and this was a place that was bordering India. And I was just like, oh, my God, the girls are just... What, you know, it's so different from what I expected rural Bangladesh to be, right? There is so much freedom, like young people, there's just so, you know, are hanging out together, having tea. And then somebody was like, do you want um, shawar kameez outfits? Because they come across the border. I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm not here to shop. But just watching, you know, the sort of the markets where you see the cross-border trade and the, and the, um, and the diffusion of cultures with India, which is really amazing, right? And then 
Um, and then going to the South, which was just so different and socially so much more conservative where women were so much more like they wouldn't even come out of their, you know, of their house if there is a male, if somebody male present. So navigating those differences and and also, by the way, my first field visit, I mean, my Bengali is really good, but I was just so conscious speaking Bengali. I'm like, am I going to speak city Bengali? Like, how do I do this? So it took me a couple of days to sort of do all, you know, to understand all that well. But I think I want to make the intellectual connection as well. For me, a big challenge in the book was dealing with the translation because my interviews were in Bengali and that is my mother tongue. So I did my analysis in Bengali, actually. I didn't translate anything until I was actually writing it, right? So um, I did my analysis, uh, coded it all in Bengali, and then I did the translation because I wanted it to be authentic. Um, FYI, I did take a couple of MFA classes while I was writing this book. So you might see that in the way, like, you know, in a, in a lot of the liberty I took with language. But um, a couple of colleagues and I were taking MFA class and we we're talking about writing. And I realized I was reading all these writing books and they weren't helping. Because my challenge wasn't in writing English. My challenge was in how to write Bengali in English, right? And, and especially because it was my mother tongue, I felt such an attachment with words. And, and one of the things... Um, that I learned was that for me, as I started to unpack words, they became entire concepts. So I was talking about, you know, one term, which was Shangshakora, and Shangshakora is family, right? So I'm like, what does Shangshakora mean? And how do I, so I had this Twitter conversation with friends, and then it turned into this like, huge thing in the book where I just talked about what was Shangshakora meaning doing the family, meaning what is the woman's role, right? So it starts with her role as a wife, um, as a daughter, going into being a wife and being a mother and cooking and cleaning. And so, and, you know, her, her sexual and reproductive roles, all of that, right? So there were so many instances where just being connected with a language became its own intellectual journey. And I had a lot of fun with that. I think, thank you for sharing that. And and I think, um, you know, so much of that resonates so deeply. Um, and and I think it's also uh, like especially your example of of Shonshar Kora. Like I don't think there's a literal translation in English because we wouldn't code in English. Like grammar is not set up in a way to code it in that way. Because because to me, when I think of of the phrase Shonshar Kora, it kind of centers the woman's work. You know, it focuses on the woman's work in reproducing these institutions, these structures, and. And in a way, like in, you know, in the English speaking world, we have to make that work visible, whereas this phrase already visualizes that, you know, like in a, in a very banal kind of way. So I think that's very interesting. And, and of course, my own research is bilingual. So I always, you know, uh, like, especially with coding or with analysis, it's always difficult to go back and forth. Um, but, but anyway, I think there is, there is so much more to get into here. Um, but I will ask you, I think, my concluding question, which is, what are some of the provocations you would like to leave your readers with? And and what are some of the projects that you're excited to work on in the future now? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think one of the key lessons for me coming out of this book was that we really need to understand the local, right? Not just for what it is, but also for how it changes our understanding of existing concepts and theories. So, you know, for example, when we try to talk about local, the framing is often in terms of words like tradition or culture. And, and there is amazing scholarship around that, right? But 
Um, but the framing is often in terms of this deviation from these Western-centric co- concepts, right? So um, the scholars are now asking what happens when you take this understanding of local and feed it back into these sort of colonized concepts, and how do these concepts change as a result? So can we decolonize concepts, right? Can we look at these practices as more than just corruption or more than just um, patriarchal, you know, even if they are in some ways, right? But look at these kind of underlying dynamics and see if that changes our understanding of what these big words like corruption mean. Um, can we destigmatize these practices, right? Um, and and sort of these almost like so can we decolonize these concepts? That was my that was my main thing, uh, my main kind of concern here. Um, so in the book, I talk about one such thing, which was you know a topic of much conversation um, when people sort of realizes what I was talking about, I call it transactionalism. And it is when women, poor women or poor people pay a small fee, a small bribe for a welfare service. And, you know, of course, this is corruption in donor terms. But I'm also thinking before transactionalism, it was clientelism. Poor women did not get services at all. Now, if they can pay a small fee or a small bribe, if you want to use that word and get it, it's still there, you know, it's, it's inclusive in a way that clientelism was not right. So if we just put the blanket term corruption on this and don't look at what it is, we're missing out on the fact that this closed net, you know, which is what a Brack study calls this net of clientelism as it's unraveling, we're missing the opportunity to observe how that happens. So one thing I didn't get to talk about in the book, and I hope I can look into more in future work is where does this come from? Like, how do we go from clientelism to this bright paying, right? Um, so another example is, for example, village courts that I talk about in the book, which um, are often patriarchal and elitist, yes, but they also op- provide opportunities for conflict resolution when courts are not absent, or courts are not present, when the, when the legal system is not present, you know, in, in the formal way. And actually now NGOs and even the government, even the courts are trying to push cases to the village courts because they can't handle the sheer volume of cases, right? So um, so I think that was my first point. I want to make um, my second sort of provocative thought is a methodological one, because when I started re- writing this book, I realized there was no way I could tell the story if I didn't blend this quasi-experimental research with this um, sort of immersive qualitative work. And I was like, oh, my God, people are going to hate this book. Every discipline's going to be like, she doesn't know methods. And I was like, am I going to do this? And, you know, and then a couple of years ago, I was at APSA and a scholar who I really, really respect um, was speaking. And she said that um, she said that the way you do good work is you don't have to follow the prescribed path. Right. You follow you kind of carve your own path. And she was talking about her advisor, who was also a giant in political science, who hadn't basically no patience for paradigm divides. And I was like, yes, you know, like, so I decided very early on in the book that if I had to write it, I had to push aside these paradigm divides, whether methodological or sort of theoretical, right? Um, And I, it's a huge gamble for a first book, but I was like, I'm going to do it because there is no other way this can be done. Um, So I do want to sort of say that when we, when we do this, so much more comes to the surface because the only way I could tell the story. So um, my job in this book was to measure informal institutions, right? They don't, you can't see them. And the first way, you know, I want to go back to the point I made earlier, which was 
you know they exist because you compare A and B and B is different. And then you look at how B is different, right? Um, so B could be different because expectations are different. B could be different because somebody was enforcing some kind of informal rule in a way. Um, but I had to mix methods in that way to do that work. Um, and one final thought I want to, it's a sort of like more development industry oriented thought, which is that in the development world, we're still leading with this idea of economic development first, even if it's been challenged, right? So um, I kind of want to ask like, what happens when we push that aside and say, let's look just at social development. You know, let's look just at women's empowerment separate from their economic lives and the complications therein, right? Like what happens then? Um, and what happens when we sort of prioritize social development instead? Um, in terms of future work, um, my book had me thinking very hard on the intellectual connections between informal institutions, the political science literature, and how the development industry looks at social norms, which is much more sort of um, the way that economists do it. So, um, so one body of new work I'm really excited about is understanding social norms from a global and multi-multi-disciplinary sort of perspective. Um, and I have a sort of reflective paper coming out on how these social norms manifest in people's pandemic-related behaviors like vaccination and masking. Um, and, and I'm working on another paper which sort of tries to integrate social science, especially institutions, into sort of public health-related um, questions of vaccination and masking um, when it comes to the global south. And I have a second larger project that I'm working on on informality in urban spaces. So again, a sort of meta-ish project. This is more about participation and how um, informal behaviors sort of, um, whether our understanding of informal behaviors can sort of change what we know about participation um, and whether we can sort of wrestle participation back from these sort of Western-centric models of participation equals voting and um, and, and things like that. So I will end here um, by saying that I suppose I'm also trying to decolonize participation as a concept, um, but we'll see where that goes. <laughs> I mean, all the projects sound sound very exciting and even your, your provocations for what we could take away from the book and think more about is, is great. And, and I think especially the question of methodology and mixed, mixed methods research, like because I'm from gender studies, I feel like it's such a given that we will do like good gender studies research is mixed methods always because there's there's almost like because the field is interdisciplinary there is this conventional understanding or this this understanding that has become I think now grounded or commonplace now that we know that lives are messy so we know that disciplinary models are often just you know um, ways to kind of impose a binary or a boundary onto the lives of our participants and and you know, that's not what good research does. Good research focuses on the participants. So the methods focus on that messiness. So of course, it's going to be mixed, you know. Um, but but thank you so much for talking to us today. I think I had a great time. And um, I have many questions even at the end of this, but, but let's not make it too unwieldy. Um, and, you know, again, thank you so much. And, and I think for our listeners, I'd like to quote some lines from the book to end the interview. And I'm, and I'm quoting now, um, decades ago, women in development advocates believed that women could uplift their communities as they helped themselves. 
This ended up putting the burden of development on women. I hesitate to suggest that we weigh women down with more responsibilities than they are ready than they already bear. However, a one-time investment in large-scale grassroots organizations can engender structural changes that benefit women for years, perhaps generations. Women can usher in development, but real transformation can only occur if Instead of struggling to survive the institutions that hold them back, women overturn the institutions themselves. End quote. And I think this is these are these are some great great words from you that kind of summarize for me um, some of the great provocations of this book. And village ties, women, NGOs, and informal institutions in rural Bangladesh is now available in bookstores and online. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shraddha. It was so wonderful being here.